Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A mythical optimal allocation of resources is based on scarcity. If there's less money, we'll think harder about how we use it. In fact, if there's less of anything, we'll think harder about how we use it. That's why, supposedly, gold worked as a currency reserve until, of course, we needed more money to fight wars. Then we had to get rid of it. But is fiat money loosening the temptation to focus on what is the best use of resources? Do we need the concept of scarcity because otherwise... Well, where's the discipline? That's today on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome back. Now, I have to say, Steve, we uh, have spoken about this before, and uh, one of the concerns that I have about modern monetary theory is that we say money should be created until we have full employment. But how do you determine how that money is spent? It falls, and we talked about this last week, didn't we? It falls into the into the role of the government rather than the markets to determine that. So that's not really economics, is it? No, well, it's certainly not economics as we've known it. Well, economics as we've known it should no longer be known. I mean, I'm, I'm, if you know the final the final four words of my next book, of it's got to go, and it is neoclassical economics, and a lot of it revolves around to think about scarcity and about money. But if you um, say we're, we're going to create more money because because we can. Uh, and we have less of a concern about scarcity or, or, or that the resources are managed centrally. I mean, you are getting pretty close to communism. <laughs> um, no, <laughs> uh, because you still have private ownership of means of production. And, uh, and, and well, you, you see, I, I often, and I've had to do this to think about it sensibly, um, I had to think about the government as a money creator, independent of it being a creator of physical goods. Okay, so if if you think about the government, if the government creates money, that's creating, as as MMT says, net financial assets for the private sector. So the government spends it. You know, the, the so-called debt is all caught up on the government books. The private sector gets money that is not attached to a debt for the private sector, which is what happens when the private sector borrows from private banks. So you get. Uh, effectively getting tokens that you can use to circulate and the turnover of those tokens can create wages and profit and interest in the private sector. So it's it's part of providing the monetary mechanism of a capitalist economy. Uh, if you don't do it with the government doing it, then you've got to do it with banks doing it. And if banks do it, then the money that you get, if you borrow money from a bank for every you know dollar you borrow, you get a dollar worth of debt, you get zero net resources created for the non-bank sector. And you then, when you look at the, if you look in terms of equity as I define it in the way I do my macroeconomic modelling, which is the, the net sum of your claims on the rest of the world versus the rest of the world's claims on you. So I'm leaving out stuff people own outright. Uh, it's, it's stuff which involves a claim, a claim on somebody else and a claim back on you. The sum of all claims on everybody else is zero. 
Okay. Now, if you have, you then look at the assets and liabilities and equity of each group. Banks are required to have positive equity. So, if banks have positive equity, the rest of society has identical negative equity. And mm. now, in that situation, uh, you know, some of us perform quite comfortably with negative equity because we've got to turn over the money we have in existence. But it, it, you look at you see, you do your sums. Oh God, I owe more than I've, I'm, I'm worth. I better spend more slowly. And what you get out of that is a tendency not to use money for what it should be used, which is for exchange. So in that yeah. sense, I'm I'm in favour of government money creation. And looking at it that way, the best thing a government can do is provide money to to people for things like education, fully fund education, fully fund public health. Uh, and then the money that's created uh, that way is spent by students, university uh, lecturers and staff, doctors and nurses mm. into the rest of the economy. And that provides, you know... And, and a, on green projects as well, yeah. of course. So, yeah, but, but, the, the thing, but the thing is, if the government's actually deciding what the money gets spent on, then you've got your issues about whether they're the right place to do it or not. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's, it, it is still a big question mark, isn't it? But but if, if the alternative is, as you say, is that the, the banks create the money. So let's just explore that very quickly, because because the idea is that uh, you know when when banks give you a loan, they are creating money, so that is money pumped into the economy. The problem is, of course, that they yep. they want it back again. That's the yeah, which mm. is money pulled out of the economy. So uh, so you're actually no better off ultimately. And in the meantime, of course, you've paid interest to the bank as well. So you're actually. Uh, you know, so you actually materially actually worse off at the end of the whole. Well, no, you, you, well, you're better off in one sense. So like, you know, I'll, I'll give a, an example I know all too well, and that is a small business that wants to open up a, um, um, a, a, a small, small business person who's got a block of land on which they want to build storage sheds. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, if the bank gives them money for the storage sheds, let's say the sheds cost you know, $400,000 to build, uh, then they have a debt of four hundred thousand, but that four hundred thousand, and they've got to pay interest. And let's say it's ten percent, so they're paying forty thousand a year. Now that four hundred thousand is then injected into the community where that shed is built. And if that money turns over twice, I'm going to use it, just make it simple, twice a year, it that four hundred thousand of cash generates eight hundred thousand per year of income. Right. Now, so it's seed money uh, that's, that's adding to the multiplier effect, isn't it? In effect, so it's yeah, it's, it's so well, the money turns over more than one. In a healthy economy, we don't have one these days, but the money turns over more than once. So it's quite possible to borrow money and and start a business and be able to pay uh, you know pay off pay your wage, wages to your workers, uh, pay your interest bill, and still have a profit, which is dollars per year, not dollars. Mm. So. That, that's, that's, it's still beneficial. You can have a system operating that way. It's just that it creates perverse incentives for non-bank uh, private sector because by definition, again, if you just had a, a pure, pure credit economy, because the banks have to have positive equity, the rest of that society has negative equity, and then you get, oh, well, I think I might try to uh, get out of being a negative equity. I, I know what I'll do. I'll go borrow some money off the bank again and go and buy shares. And then you drive up share prices and you do your notional calculation of what your assets are worth, where if you sold the shares for the price they currently sell at, then you would have X amount of money in your account. You do your sums. Oh, gee, I'm a positive equity. Isn't that wonderful? You've got a Ponzi scheme going called 1929. But, but you could you um, could fix that with regulation, though, couldn't you? If you, if you go back to that... that ex- regulate? Where's the government? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah I mean, it should... I mean, the, the, Ha-ha, the fact, got you, and this is the pub joke time again. But the fact back in the pub. But, the, but the, yeah, the fact they're not doing it, exactly. But I mean, the but if you take the example example of the um, of the warehouses where you know you wanted some money to mm. invest and then that creates uh, helps 
adds the velocity of money and it helps the economy and it employs people. So that's all good. That money came from the from the bank and from investors, presumably because they saw that there was a business model here that was worth investing in. Better that the commercial mm. sector does that than uh, than having to go to the government and having a government bureaucrat saying, uh, "Well, I'm not quite." Well, this, we, we've this, done that. We've, we've done four warehouses this year. We're not doing anymore. Well, yeah, and, and that and that's and that's the problem. I mean, the, the classic instance there, in, in, in terms of when the government does the spending or decides decides who it gives the money to for spending. The best uh, comparison I think we've got right now is the space race, uh, where I think it's called UAL, the Universal uh, ULA Universal Launch. Uh, group or whatever it's called, it's uh, Bezos is part of it, I think, uh, but it's Boeing and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And they're the ones who are building the rocket that's uh, supposed to take American astronauts back to the moon, where they will then exchange into a SpaceX uh, capsule to go down to the to the surface, uh, or SpaceX, SpaceX um, what do they call the Starship? Now, the when you look at the business model there, Elon Musk has built 15 prototypes of uh, actually 20 now, they're up to prototype number 20 anyway, of starships. And they're all coming out at a matter of millions of dollars each, whereas the first ULA rocket is still being built and is coming in the billions. And what you've got is all mm. the rorts. And it, it, it's, the money that's been created for it is, is being uh, allocated to different states, sort of state largesse, uh, it, it's an enormous rort, and that's the sort of thing people complain about when they see the government doing this sort of thing. And in, ter- in terms of the best intellectual argument I've seen pulling apart why well, that's a bad thing is work by the a brilliant, brilliant, the brilliant Hungarian economist Janos Kornai when he talked about soft versus hard budget constraints. Now, if you're actually doing it for the private, you know, largely private sector driven, which is what you can see Musk is doing, he's got a very hard budget constraint, he, and he's, do, he's therefore doing it as not not just because of that reason alone, because of personality, but he's doing it cost effectively. Whereas the amount of money being thrown at the ULA is gigantic and a huge waste of money, uh, and you mm-hmm. look at it that way. So that, that's one of the cases where you'd rather have the government creating the money and 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 you know. And, and handing it over uh, to the private sector through things like health, education, welfare, uh, yeah. where they're not making any the decisions about who gets the money. Yeah, the, pub, the public goods that, yeah. uh, that yeah. it's hard to commercialise, yeah. So, uh, but even going back to Elon Musk, though, I wonder whether I mean, uh, the idea of scarcity and, and opportunity cost so the issue with opportunity cost is it's not the same for everybody, is it? So, you know, if you look at a, a poor person values the power to heat their council house more than a rich person values the same amount of power. So scarcity obviously only works if you have the same degree of wealth and income for everybody on the planet. The moment you don't have that, which is obviously where we are now, um, then the whole idea of scarcity and opportunity cost goes out the window. So, for example, Elon Musk might be spending a lot of money and getting investors spending a lot of money putting uh, stuff into the sky but that money might actually be uh, better allocated to poor people who need food for example and the system isn't allowing that to happen because elon musk can afford to do that because he's got a lot of money and so and, and a lot of rich mates yeah and this is in other words the whole idea of opportunity cost is when you look at the aggregate level is tied up in the in the, in the fairness of this mm. distribution of income 
So the neoclassical model yeah. doesn't just have this idea about everything should be calculated in terms of opportunity costs. It's also assuming the distribution of income is fair. And that's, what called, that's, what, that's called the marginal productivity theory of income distribution. Uh, so that's one reason why neoclassicals defend that ludicrous theory as vigorously as they do. And my, my, my friend and colleague and patron, and I'm patron of him as well, of course, uh, Blair Fix points out that's the, the actual distribution of income has got bugger all to do with merit. It's got to do with really power and hierarchy. But the, 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 the yeah. opportunity cost... I mean, I, I mean yeah. one of my good mates down in Australia, uh, uh, Raja Jananka, he's, a, one of, he's my head of school, head of uh, at um, uh, University of Western Sydney for a while. We've, we've been mates ever since he first turned up there. And he's sort of on the progressive side of mainstream economics. He's not very happy with the mainstream, but he still comes from there. I remember him once being asked, what's the most important concept in economics you can learn? He said, opportunity cost. And I scoffed because... The way opportunity cost is defined, first of all, the income distribution has to be fair. We'll chuck that out the window. Uh, but, but secondly, it's presuming that you, and anything you put towards one activity means you can do less of another. Mm. That's the fundamental yeah. idea of opportunity And it's cost. a lot more complicated than that, obviously. Well, the thing is most of the, you and I, like if, you know, I've got 24 hours a day. If I spend less doing one thing, I can do more doing one thing. I've got to do less of something else in, in that 24 hours. That's... You know, there's only 24 yeah. hours in a day. And, at the and individual level, location. it makes perfect sense. But the moment you... Ag- yeah, ag- but at the collective level, it's garbage. Yeah, because it's too complicated. There's too many... It- no, it just isn't, isn't realistic because you can get more of everything if you're uh, inside what neoclassicals call your production possibility frontier. Uh, I can't put a bit of echo on a, The production possibility uh, frontier. Yeah, yeah. Produ- production possibility frontier. There you go. Uh, <laughs> And how, the echoes because there's a vacant space in neoclassical minds. <laughs> and uh, how does that work? Uh, yeah, that, huh? what they what they draw. You just you draw a little X Y axis on your piece of paper in front of you, and label the northern uh, the, the the vertical guns and the horizontal butter. Mm. And they and then what you do you effectively draw a circle linking the two together, and that's what your production possibility curve is. And so for each extra extra gram of butter you produce, you've got to give up one uh, relative number of guns being produced. So to produce more butter, you've got to produce less guns, and that's that's when you have a limit. Now if you're on the inside of that curve, if you're not fully employing all your capital and you're not fully employing all your labour, you can produce more of guns and butter okay so opportunity cost only applies if you've got totally fully employed resources now when you look in the real world first of all we know we have involuntary unemployment on a grand scale these days Uh, secondly we know when you look at the industrial capacity figures uh, most factories are operating operating at the the level of about 80 percent capacity and there's good reasons for operating at less than full capacity because first of all if you built a factory and on day one it was fully occupied you built too small a factory mm. okay? you have in fact in a potential expanding market secondly because you've got competitors if you don't have excess capacity and your competitors stumble you can't do anything about it and also you're, you're lacking ambition because if you're in, a, in, a, in the car market for example you have the ambition to take over you know 10 percent more than you've currently got 
and so does your neighbour, and so does your other neighbour, and therefore collectively the amount of investment you're doing is initially 130% of the potential demand. Some of it is going to miss out. So there's all sorts of reasons why there's excess capacity in a well-functioning capitalist system. And this is what Janus Kornai talked about brilliantly in his concept of what he called demand-constrained versus resource-constrained economies. Now, neoclassical economics suits a resource-constrained economy, and that's communism. So, right, okay. <laughs> you got upset when I called you a communist, didn't you? Everyone else has, so yeah. I thought it was my turn. <laughs> so, um, so, okay, so, the, yeah, because there's, cause we're not at full capacity, uh, then really there's no scarcity. That, that scarcity argument disappears anyway, doesn't it? It because, does, and it we're, does. We're never yeah. going to be, and, and so until yeah. everyone is employed, uh, and that's that. We're a long, long way off that. Until we've uh, tapped all the energy we possibly can out of the sun, and we have used every scrap of uh, of land on the surface. Actually, that, that's one element that is scarce. Obviously, it, it's the ultimate. Ulti- well, it's limited. I mean, they, they, but the thing is, there are limits to growth, but they've got nothing to do with with opportunity cost. No. And this is this is again, this is one of these things that looks like it's got a lot of wisdom, and 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 uh, and that's why I think you know good mates of mine like Raja will come out and say that's the most important thing one learns as an economist. It's wrong. Mm. It's 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 a very sensible way of allocating your twenty four hour day as a human being. Okay, if you want to really think about it that way, you know, uh, one hour more hour at the pub, one less hour with your wife, that sort of thing. Um, um, I'm not going to go any further on that line. And but, but at the collective level, you have excess capacity everywhere. And there's the, the, the idea that in neoclassicals have, again, that opportunity costs at set relative price is simply wrong because you're nowhere near being in that scarcity point. So what's actually setting uh, absolute price is really income distribution between workers and capitalists. That's the main determinant, the wage markup on wages. And that's where Koleski's work is so important. Um, but it's, it's, not, it's not giving it the scarcity signal. Mm. And this is why, you know, the, both the, the neoclassicals and the Austrians need to imagine a world of full employment uh, and where also where the workers can voluntarily decide to not work as hard because if they don't get a decent pay rate, they can go back to their, home, their own, own a, a managed farm and produce their own output there. Uh, all these fictional elements are necessary to make that model fall whole together. Mm-hmm. And, it, of course, they're fictional. It, it isn't the model of the real It's curious, world. isn't it? Because economists really you think of as being a, uh, a group of people who are there to uh, advise governments on how to help the economy grow. And yet, the moment they start talking about scarcity, they're, they're talking about slowing it down. They're talking about uh, making decisions which are not going to enable them. And they're talking about a world that doesn't exist anyway. I mean, that's why, otherwise, mm. I mean, I'm, I'm really, uh, having spent 50 years trying to point out the flaws of this theory to its, its own mob, I've given up. I think I gave up when I wrote Debunking Economics 20 years ago. Um, but the basic idea, you can't convert them. They're, they're, they're locked into this way of thinking about the world. The important thing is not to let their thinking infect anybody else. Uh, they are the, um, uh, what's his name? I forgot. They're, they're the Jonestowns of the intellectual world. And the less that they infect anybody else, the better off we all are. But investors go after scarcity as well, don't they? Uh, so uh, they, they're, they're out looking for it. So, for example, Bitcoiners will say, you know, we're in Bitcoin because, um, you know, because fiat money is is growing. And so that's not money isn't a scarce resource. Bitcoin is they think it's going to hold value because it's the next scarce thing. So, but that's investment money. That's the trouble. That's the trouble. You don't want your money to be scarce. Um, but and, they'll and, say, but, and, but it and, will and just what, keep on pushing the right. price up because. Well, that's the, if you just push up the price, why would you? Why would you buy anything with it? 
And this this is the trouble. Mon- money fundamentally is the means of payment. I mean, if it's, as a as a currency, it would be def- yeah. a deflationary currency. Yeah. It wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It'd be absolutely good reason not to spend anything. And that's why that's when I first saw the thing hodl, I thought, what's going on? I thought, oh bloody hell! Hold on for dear life. Okay. Well, that's what they're doing. Mm. They don't want to spend it, and therefore it's not money. Mm. Until it can enable, so you, you, that's you, money should have a, a, either a, a stable or decreasing value over time, uh, because a, a slight decrease in the value of money encourages you to spend it. Yeah. Uh, you don't want it decreasing so fast you're grabbing wheelbarrows of the stuff to go shopping, which is the the hyperinflation point that people uh, you know point to all the time with, with with which has happened with two or three fiat currencies under exceptional circumstances around the world but generally speaking since the 1900s uh, a small level of inflation has been the norm and that's if acts a bit like what gazelle was arguing in favor of which was uh, a, a, a docking people uh, for money not spent because you're trying to encourage a high level of turnover. And that's, you know, we, we talked sometime about the Wargle, exper- Wargle experiment, uh, where, where money which depreciated caused an enormous level of economic activity and basically counteracted for a, this uh, small uh, town, uh, counteracted the effects of the Great mm, Depression. Yeah. So, it's a great yeah, story. so scarce, scarcity is, is just, it, it, is com- it is the right way to think about a communist society. And that's where I think you know, I love Janos Kornos' work. Um, because he was trying to understand why is it that Hungary is growing more slowly than Italy? What, what's wrong with the communist system that it's innovating less and growing more slowly than the Western economies it's supposed to overtake, according to Marx's theories? And his answer was that when you, when you face constraints caused by scarcity, the, only, the best way to get around those constraints is not to innovate. Hmm. Okay, As, and so it, 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 the focus shouldn't be on efficient use of resources, which is the whole way neoclassical economics thinks, and what the Soviets worried about when they did their central planning. Uh, you you want you want to be innovating and taking risks, and in, in that that world where you'd innovate and take risks is one where there's demand is constrained, and you're trying to get your your demand away from your rivals in the transportation business. So your way of doing that is to invent a sexy electric car, um, which uh, you wouldn't have got a sexy electric car out of eastern Germany. What you got was a bloody car made out of cardboard, the Trabit. Um, and and um, I mean, I think I told you this analogy before, but I uh, had a, 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 a girlfriend's brother who couldn't afford a 650cc Suzuki and found he could buy a 650cc Cossack, which is the Russian motorbike. Ordered it, bought it. I helped them unpack it, uh, pulled it out of the wooden crates, took all the oil-soaked rags off it, and this, in all its glory, was a 1942 BMW. <laughs> that was in 1975. Wow. Yeah. So what, a cardboard car? Seriously? Literally? You didn't, you didn't know no, that. So you, oh, the Trabot. I'm pretty certain the Trabot was made out of cardboard. So you couldn't go out in wet weather. Uh, well, see, you, you, you had resource shortage. This was a shortage. Well, this, this is the world where opportunity cost applied. And Cornell's explanation is brilliant because he said, if if you wish to, um, if you if you live in a, a, a capitalist economy, you're trying to make the maximum profit you can. Uh, you want to pay your workers as little as possible. And what you therefore has is a deficiency of aggregate demand overall. 
And as, as, since you've got competitors who are fighting for the same available market, everybody's trying to out-innovate somebody else. Competition is not about price, it's about innovation. Um, so th therefore, you will have excess capacity, you will have insufficient aggregate demand, you will have booms and slumps, but the, the, because the pressure is there to innovate, you'll get an economy which grows over time. Uh, then you look at the Soviet system, and what you have is a world where everybody's uh, desires are valid, where you're trying to give the maximum income you can to the working class, so you pay high wages, everybody has money to buy things, uh, but what happens is uh, no, no sector, no, no factory can get all the inputs it needs because all the other factor is you know, you're allocating what you've got amongst all the various competing demands. You want to make sure everybody gets as much as they can, so you ration everybody. So all the firms are rationed, and therefore the easiest way that firm can, in, uh, can, can produce to the planned target output is to forget about innovation. Just make last year's model again, make more mm -hmm. of them. And what you get, therefore, is you know, full employment, but you get a stagnant economy. And 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 that that's that's a world of scarcity. And as it's a world said, of that lack of competition. World of lack of competition that's driving that, though, isn't it? I mean, it, it more to do with that than scarcity. It's not the fact that no one's come along and no, said, no, well, it, we it, can, it, we, you know, "Let's make a car that's not out of cardboard." Yeah, but then then again, uh, you 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 were competing for the resources yeah. to do that. So, like mm -hmm. the, the the Hungarians did try. Uh, and the Yugoslavians did try a range of market innovations within the overall context of the plan. They did better than Russia sticking to the strict you know, five-year plan stuff, but they still didn't have the level of innovation you saw in the West. So, and, mm, uh, yeah. so the, let's get back to the fundamental then. Of if, if you are uh, you know, sitting in your first economics class, and I'm sure this is the line that's been used a million, million times by economics teachers you know from 16 years plus uh the economics really is is the science of how you allocate resources and the, the concept of of scarcity we've only got so many resources on the planet how do we allocate those in a way that is the most efficient so that people get the maximum utility out of those resources and that's economics so you're saying that and that's garbage and you're saying that's garbage that's so garbage. what would you say yep. If you were taking that class and saying, this is what economics is, you know, you're, you're a 16-year-old, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, wants to know all about economics, what would be your opening line of, the, of, of an explanation of, of what this discipline is? It's a study of the monetary production economy of capitalism. Doesn't sound quite as sexy, Steve. And you then look, look at what exists <laughs> in the real world rather than having a, an abstract notion that precedes the real world, which is the way the neoclassicals work. Right. They actually talk about capitalism as if it was designed for a particular function when it evolved out of feudalism. Um, so they've got a non, they've got a, an idealised version straight away. And one of the there's several ironies in that stupid definition. One of the first ironies is even though the neoclassicals have run up, and, and you know that's the, uh, it's, it, it's, the full definition is uh, economics is the science of the, of the allocation of scarce resources uh, 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 of, of scarce resources. No, if the satisfaction of unlimited wants using scarce resources which have alternative uses. Mm. Okay. Now, do you tell me, what if you don't use a blast furnace to make steel, what else are you going to do with your blast furnace? Make coffee? You get a lot of cups yeah. of coffee out of it. Uh, but yeah. I, um, no, yeah I, think, I, of think about the amount of caffeine you get so out of one what blast you, what furnace. You, what you gave in your definition was money, actually, which isn't obviously mentioned at all. No, monetary, product theory, monetary theory, but it'd be, it'd be the theory of well, produ production for a start. It's, it's something which is, is, is why, why, why do humans not wear fur? 
Okay, why don't they grow their own fur? Why do humans you know, wear clothing, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? It's because we're exploiting the laws of thermodynamics without even knowing we're doing it. We're exploiting free energy mm. on the planet and then enabling us to live at a higher level of energy consumption than the other animals on the planet. And, and so that explaining that as your very first uh, realm. And then the way that is done in the modern economy, modern society, we've progressed from slavery to feudalism uh, to, to capitalism, it's a monetary production economy. And therefore, the engine driving your um, exploitation of that free energy is one driven by profit motive and by money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so money's at the root of it. I mean, which is, it's interesting that uh, one of the roots. It, yeah, energy and, and the energy and money yeah. uh, are the fundamental roots that economics should be based upon, and both of them are ignored by the mainstream. So, the environment is something that we have scarcity on. So, we've. I mean, there's, there's oh, that's a, what they think. That's unlimited. This is this, this, this irony bullshit. All. At the Absolutely. Because yeah, you know, right now, bloody Nordhaus. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at his graphs right now. Okay, and this twerp. Um, um, I was going to say twat, but one of my friends pointed out there's a slight problem with that word. I didn't realize where it came from. So thank you, Brian. I won't use the word again. Um, uh, but he's, he's got predictions of the level of uh, GDP for 500 years. So his model is forecasting the GDP of the economy for longer than the existence of capitalism into the future. Uh, and, and as if we can continue growing... Uh, without running into various physical constraints. Now, you talk to anybody who knows their thermodynamics, and there's a, there's a wonderful blog post you know, that I've raved about before called um, um, Finite Physicist Meets Exponential Economist. And in that, the, the, the physicist who knows the laws of thermodynamics pointed out that if, if the rate of growth is 2.3% per annum, uh, which means a, a doubling in energy consumption every, I think it's every you know, about 40 years, um, or 30 years. In 400 years, the the second law of thermodynamics, forget about global warming, the second law of thermodynamics, when the waste heat generated by the earth would exceed the boiling point of water. Now, here I am looking at a forecast uh, by, by uh, um, uh, Nordhaus of a rate of growth of running at about 3% per annum for 500 years. Uh, you know, the real scarce resource in economics is brains. <laughs> Uh, so uh, we're, we're paying the price, of course, right now. So we talked last week about those high temperatures that they've been seeing in uh, in mm. the northwest of the US and in Canada. I mean, there's a drought around a lot of the world as well. We're seeing less crops this year. Grain prices have shot up uh, this year. That is particularly ha- uh, hurting the poorer nations. The richer nations who caused it, of course, don't really suffer. Uh, you know, the not price yet. of loaf might... Yeah, not yet. You know, at the moment, maybe the price of a loaf will go up a little bit. But... Uh, but the, the economics of scarcity, I mean, doesn't as we've said, doesn't work well. But it certainly doesn't work well when you look at climate change because, yeah. uh, you know, and the use of free resources like air and water. I mean, they're, they're, they're ignored. Yeah, and we have, to, we have to see where the real scarcity lies. And it's not in bloody opportunity cost. Mm. Uh, it's in having a physical environment where we're mining and exploiting and dumping the waste into the, into the biosphere of that, of that uh, genuinely scarce resource yeah. called the biosphere. Yeah. So that's, that's where we throw out this opportunity cost nonsense. Um, and start thinking about the fact that we do live with scarce resources being uh, the, the physical resources of the planet and the capacity of the planet to absorb the waste we generate. To which uh, neoclassic economists would say, well, that's exactly what we're talking about. 
Uh, how do we? And they haven't got a effing clue. <laughs> they haven't got an effing clue. I copped another guy. But they would. But they would. So they, but they would. They would say right? though. You know, with the, the scarcity of resources gets back to the uh, the resources available on the planet. I mean, that's the. Oh, they'd find any way to twist it back to the way they want to think. Mm. But it's just the wrong way to think. I copped this this guy uh, today. Got involved in a in a discussion with me. Uh, very briefly, coming in with some silly comment after one of the. Um, um, uh, comments about climate change and he said, he said i think climate is basically weather you know so i've defined it and therefore I, well, where's my nobel prize and i said well you deserve one you're about as stupid as william nordhaus um uh, you know the, the, it, it generates this arrogance and obviously i'm being arrogant towards them but it generates this intellectual arrogance and the economics can be applied to any other field now when we're talking about climate change there's a massive discontinuity okay? if we flip the climate and we're doing it right now by pretty much eliminating arctic summer sea ice that is going to cause a discontinuous change in the climate and you cannot analyze discontinuous change using marginal uh, concepts which is what they do uh, you know and then they and they're trying to get the, the maximum gap between the, the total cost and the total benefits which is where the two marginals are equal that's requiring continuous curves and this ain't a continuous process we're getting discontinuous change and the people of canada may well be the first uh, nation that really takes that on board because they're watching their 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 uh, western seaboard and in inner west burn uh in in one of the clearest manifestations yet of serious climate change. So maybe economics will morph into or should morph into something which is really focused on sort of managing the optimal lifestyle for the population while living within the constraints of the planet, you know, within the constraints of the now, climate. Ultimately, that's what we're going to be forced to do. Yeah. I mean, we could have we could have avoided this crisis if we hadn't let neoclassicals demolish the limits to growth and trivialize it. I still think humanity would have stuffed up in some way, but if the, the understanding of the limits to growth study had back in 72 uh, was a, about the physical constraints of the planet and the need to live within them, mm. and therefore the need to constrain runaway growth from, from capitalism, not let it happen, direct uh, growth so that you know, back in 72 we would have been going towards more renewable energy forms way back then, um, long before we actually started doing it, Population control, uh, uh, a whole set of policies to reduce the rate of growth and the overall you know, maximum level of our exploitation of the biosphere. And we haven't done it, so we're going to be forced, I think, into effectively a military system to be able to do it at a later stage. All right. So in summary, uh, there is no scarcity so long, as long as you're not impacting the planet in, in whatever it is you're doing. There's no scarcity because well, there'll always be people, there'll always be energy. And there's no opportunity cost, again, so long as you don't damage the, plot, the, the planet. There's only opportunity in effect. So it's not a choice between A and B. Either A and B can both provide a return on the investment it's A and B should be the way we're thinking. Yeah, yeah, where that's where that's feasible, and of course that's anywhere except what we're doing to the, to the uh, overall biosphere. Yeah, which is the bigger concern. All right, great, mm. great stuff. Good to talk again, Steve. Uh, catch you next week.
Okay. Yep. Right. Yep. If you uh, look at the uh, the dictionary definition of opportunity cost, this is the loss of potential gain from other alternatives when one alternative is chosen, and that, that is the danger, isn't it? It seems that it's either one or the other, and often the constraint that makes us choose between one or the other is uh, because of the lack of available money, and money is uh, an artificial construct. If you just made more of it available, then surely you could take both alternatives, even if one of them is slightly be- less beneficial than the first one, so long as it's more beneficial than doing nothing at all. Do both. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's it for this week. I'm Phil Dobby, back with Steve King for another Debunking Economics podcast next week. See you then. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.